Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do in the face of an international disaster decades in the making? That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. Thank you for joining us on this week's edition of Utah Weekly Forum. I'm your host, Rebecca Cressman, and today our guest is Brandon Amaker. He has a couple of titles with Utah Valley University. He's the director of the Emerging Tech Policy Lab, and he also is an adjunct professor for UVU's Center for National Security Studies. So as I introduce those big topics, the reason why, Brandon, I wanted to make sure we could bring you on today is that there has been warnings from President Biden and our intelligence community about being aware of Russian cyber attacks that could come our way. Uh, so we're going to talk a bit about what that means for each of us who live in Utah, what it means for our country, uh, the targets that might be uh, exploited. But first, I wanted to get a little bit more understanding of the cybersecurity piece in our national security puzzle. Is it a big piece? Absolutely. And it has continued to become more and more important uh, as technology has developed and as we as a country have become more and more reliant on the Internet and digital services in order to function as an economy. Um, we've seen you know, very much you know, in Ukraine over the last 10 years what cyber attacks can do is Russia has kind of used them as a test lab for cyber attacks. And they've been able to take down significant portions of their energy infrastructure, taking out the power, taking out transportation. Um, and so here in the U.S., we're not immune to that as much as we might like to think that we are. But uh, there are some pretty serious vulnerabilities. And I think uh, the public is starting to become aware of that more and more, you know, following some of the events that we've had over the last year and a half, you know, including the solar winds breach, and uh, the Colonial Pipeline, you know, which caused some pretty significant economic disruption on the East Coast. So absolutely, I think it's paramount and it's just going to keep getting more and more important, uh, unfortunately. Well, and, you know, uh, there was a lot of talk um, about the influence of misinformation that was specifically being sent out by Russia during our last election and the election before that. Is that included as cyber warfare or are we talking about misinformation is more like a, a passive attack on the country's security? No, you know, it's it's very interesting because, uh, you know, and it's not just exclusive to Russia either. Uh, there are many nation state actors who are engaged in multifaceted attacks on United States national security. So, uh, you know, for a while, it was kind of believed that these were separate groups within Russia that were, you know, executing some of these campaigns, uh, you know, attempting to, you know, these misinformation campaigns or, you know, attempting to compromise uh, faith in institutions or, you know, election security, and that 
there were other groups who were executing these uh, these infrastructure attacks in Ukraine and Estonia. But as time has gone on, research and uh, intelligence reports have tended to show that a lot of this is traceable back to the same groups, you know, with these same intelligence agencies within the Russian government. So, you know, they're all, you know, different prongs of, uh, you know, what a cyber warfare effort looks like. So, no, absolutely. They're all connected and they, uh, they kind of go hand in hand in some cases. Well, there's so much to learn, but here we are in 2022 and cyber attacks and cybersecurity. It's not science fiction. But you mentioned recently that Russia had successful cyber attacks against Ukraine before their invasion. Um, tell us more about that. Did it target their energy sources? Yeah, so there's actually quite a history uh, over the last 10 years of, of cyber attacks in Ukraine. I mean, as early as 2015, uh, Russia was launching some pretty significant cyber attacks on Ukrainian infrastructure. This included, you know, taking systems at airports and railways offline. And, you know, in December of 2015, a large cyber attack actually took large components of the Ukrainian power grid offline for quite a while. And those types of attacks have, you know, sporadically continued uh, in Ukraine over the last you know, several years, and one of the most disruptive ones, which it's called NAPETIA, that's a term that people can look up if they're interested in learning more about this, but it it was one of the most devastating attacks ever, and it had some spillover effects outside of Ukraine as well, because it was targeted at Ukrainian companies that were using a certain Ukrainian tax software, but it ended up hitting a lot of international companies, such as Maersk, the shipping company, Merck, which is a large U.S. pharmaceutical firm, FedEx, and even in many some U.S. hospitals, uh, you know, it took out uh, approximately 10% of all computers in Ukraine, but it also temporarily crippled one-fifth of the world's shipping capacity and cost upward of $10 billion, that's the estimate. So, you know, there's quite a history there, and, I, you know, I don't want to dive too far into that, but, you know, recently people have been a little, experts have been a little surprised at how subdued uh, Russia's cyber efforts have been over the last few weeks, you know, uh, alongside their military efforts, because most experts were projecting much more activity. But there are different theories along that. But some of that is they might be holding that in reserve you know, for the instance of things coming to a stalemate, which might be why we're seeing some of these increased alerts coming from the administration. It's so interesting. And, you know, as a broadcaster, I've seen in most recent years, our company take more and more steps to provide cybersecurity at work. That's to protect our own data here that is used as a part of our business, but also to maintain our ability as a licensed broadcaster to stay on the air and do what we need to do on a day-to-day basis. Now, if I put that in light of what President Biden has now warned us, which is the country is at greater risk of more cyber attacks from Russia. Is his warning mostly directed toward businesses or does it also apply to individuals, neighbors and community members? I mean, it absolutely applies to individuals as well. And uh, part of that is just in the fact that we rely so heavily on many businesses, which would be, you know, even if you think to yourself, oh, you know, I'm just a you know, an individual, you know, uh, here in Utah who doesn't really have access to any sensitive information or, you know, I just use my computer for, you know, my work or my, you know, watching Netflix, whatever it might be, by banking. You have to realize that uh, we're so interconnected with many of these large organizations that are, you know, valuable targets to an Asian state actor. I mean, uh, I 
assume that you know most of your listeners, if not all, probably have a Google account of some kind. They probably rely on uh, Microsoft products, Apple products. They probably utilize Amazon or you know at the very least websites that are hosted on Amazon. So you know there is collateral damage in in a cyber war. It's not something that we typically think of when we think of cyber, but there is absolutely spillover. There's absolutely collateral damage, and that can hurt people who might even think that they're removed from the conflict. So what do we do about that? As, as you are um, uh, helping people understand the threat that increased cyber attacks can um, uh, have on the everyday person in addition to businesses, what do we do in the face of knowing, okay, more could coming? What does a business need to do, for example? So, yeah, I mean, uh, businesses, there are some crossover between steps that are good for everyone and steps that are good for, for businesses. Okay. Um, I think I think for businesses in particular, though, uh, understanding the value and the liability that you have uh, operating in your in your environment. And even this even goes for small businesses that might not consider themselves, um, you know, a good target, but getting yourself educated. So, you know, for example, say you're a one-person uh, realty firm, you know, you run your own realty company. Well, you know, you might not think that you're an appealing target, but you have access to some pretty sensitive information for your clients. And so steps that you should take, I mean, be very conscious of password discipline, change your passwords often, make sure that you're trying to avoid being predictable. Uh, you know, you good, you know, industry standard right now is you want it to be at least 12 characters and you want to mix in uppercase, lowercase, numbers, uh, symbols. Uh, a trick that I like to use is, you know, think of a phrase that only you would remember. So pull something from memory. Say you took a trip to Rome or something and you saw, uh, you know, a strange cat or somebody in a hat, you can say, okay, you know, strange Roman cat crosses the bridge or something like that. That is a very strong password that would be difficult to, to guess. Uh, and then also make sure you're not using the same password for every site. Password managers are a great option for that. Uh, keep your software up to date. Uh, and then also something that I, this is kind of a personal thing for me that I think doesn't get enough attention, but be very uh, stingy with your data. Um, you know, the more organizations have your sensitive data as an individual, the more likely, or as a business, right? The more points of failure you have, should one of those organizations be compromised. So, you know, think to yourself, does this organization really need this information from me or from my business? Uh, I was so thinking about some of the social media use that you'll go on to, you know, engage in a different website and the website will offer you the opportunity to log in using your Google or log in using your Facebook, right? Or ra- rather right. than a unique login. And And I'm assuming from what you've shared that if we are... Uh, going to log in utilizing something like our social media page. We've just opened that door and connected it so that uh, it would be easier for people to get access to much more of our personal information. Right. Particularly if you, uh, you know, if you're not careful with how you secure those, uh, those accounts, you know, if you have a Facebook page that has a weak password and you're using it to log into a bunch of other resources as well, you know, that's, uh, that's very dangerous. Or, you know, if you're not careful with the types of links that you're clicking on Facebook or, you know, things that you get through Messenger, I mean, how many times have you seen someone's Facebook get hacked and then you get a link, you know, from them claiming that it's them? And, you know, that is, uh, you know, that, that's a, a, lot of, a lot of information and a lot of value, you know, that you're serving up fairly easily to a potential threat actor.
And for those who have just joined us, this is Brandon Amaker. He's with Utah Valley University, and he uh, is a specialist, an expert on not only a national security, but on emerging technology and the connection between both. So we're really pleased to have Brandon here as we've been talking about the increased risk of cyber attacks. In this case, coming from Russia, but it can be applied to any towards almost any bad actor who may want access to destabilize the country or community and or to take our personal data and to misuse it. So as you're sharing these ideas that passwords have to be unique and they have to be complex, and you mentioned that there is something called password managers. Can you explain a little bit more about what that might be? Yes. So a password manager is a service or a program where you are able to store passwords for the multiple websites that you might be logging into. And so what this will do, you know, some of you are probably familiar with this. You've probably seen either, you know, Apple or Google's version of this where they'll recommend a strong password for a website. So the idea behind these programs is that you create one very strong centralized password for your password manager. This is something long, unique, strong, and complicated that you can remember And then from there, these password manager programs, they will generate computerized passwords for the rest of your account, making sure that each one is unique, each one is strong, and you don't have to necessarily remember each one. So it's a good way to make sure that you practice good password hygiene without having to come up with unique personas for every single one, so long as your central password for the password manager uh, to get in, you know, and I also recommend setting up multi-factor authentication if possible, but Make sure that that is very strong because from there on out, that will, uh, it's an easier way to practice good password hygiene. It's really breathtaking to think about how many organizations and businesses have access to our personal data and how many of them we access regularly on the Internet. And uh, we had an example of that play out for my 87-year-old father. We wanted to make sure that his passwords were secure because, of course, you know, he gets uh, email phishing attempts to try to uh, coerce him to uh, click on the wrong thing. And so as we were trying to clean things up, we made a list of all of the websites with which he interacts, hospitals, insurance companies, uh, investment companies, pharmacies. It goes on and on. It was two and a half pages of 12-point font of web pages that he logged on to and from which he used different passwords. And that's an 87-year-old man. Yeah, I mean... I think that's a great point. And, uh, you know, that is somebody who you probably wouldn't consider to be highly connected, right, in terms of a digital presence or an online presence. But, you know, it it just goes to show that even those who in our society might not be considered, you know, tech savvy or having a, you know, a super big online footprint, we still have so much sensitive data on there because our, our economy and our society has become so reliant on these means. Okay, so password security is really important for the individual. Is it also important then for IT departments? Are they online trying to make sure that every, you know, login for the software that a business uses is secure and safe from attack? Or are there other specific steps that those IT departments should be taking right now in light of the increased risk of cyber attacks? So uh, the answer to is both. Uh, so yes to both. Uh, you know, there are these best practices, which I think are pretty commonly known among most IT security professionals. Um, and hopefully as organizations and businesses, they will be already enforcing this, but 
you know, this might be a good reminder for them to reinforce, hey, you know, we want our employees changing their passwords at regular intervals. We want them practicing good password discipline. We want them practicing, you know, we want to train them on recognizing phishing emails, you know, those suspicious links or documents that you might get sent to your phone via text or email or whatever it might be. Um, but on top of that, I think this is a good chance for, you know, something that some organizations may not be doing is reviewing kind of an emergency plan that you would have in case should something happen to your organization, right? You know, our, how are we going to back, and this applies to individuals as well, but, you know, particularly for businesses, I know, are we going to back up our crucial systems? Where are we going to back them up? Where are we going to store that? How are we going to secure that? Um, do we want to test what it would look like to have to bring our network back online in the case of an attack? Uh, I would recommend exploring, you know, uh, different solutions offered by uh, cyber insurance companies. You know, should something take place, you will, you know, not have to incur the full brunt of that liability. And uh, also, you know, many cybersecurity companies offer incident response retainers that, should something happen, you can kind of have them on call as your like cyber 911 to respond and try to take care of your business. So, uh, you know, having that emergency plan running exercises to test, you know, how that emergency plan works, does it work? And then three, you know, just exploring outside options for help to help mitigate that liability and make sure that you do, you are taken care of in the case that something should happen. And you know, what's interesting is I worked for a company that the same employee fell for a phishing attack. So an email that came in that he thought was innocent that said, click on this to get access to that. He twice clicked within six months of each other on a phishing um, attack and downloaded malware into a company's computer. And it was absolutely shocking that he was a 34-year-old. So he wasn't someone unfamiliar with technology. He just explained it as he was in a big hurry and he just uh, fell for it. He just became, uh, the more hurried he was, the more vulnerable he was to some of the sneaky email phishing attacks that uh, can come in. I wish that wasn't as common. Right. But but each time he did that, he actually took down a portion of the company. And it took a day or two before the IT department could get it back going again. So we can be that vulnerable. Absolutely. You mentioned that there are some real obvious targets um, for that could destabilize a country. Can you give us some of that big picture? So in other words, um, what would you say are some of the vulnerable parts of the country that could be attacked by uh, a male actor like Russia? You know, so it's a great question, and it's a very broad answer because, uh, you know, as we talked about earlier, uh, cyber attack is a, is a big term. You know, it, it covers different types of attacks that range from something that's disruptive to something that is actually physically destructive, right, which is that's something that we don't think about very often. But something disruptive, right, we're talking about, oh, like a denial of service attack where, you know, you essentially overwhelm uh, a business or a website with illegitimate requests to access their site, which then shuts it down to the public. So, you know, you've seen some of these taking down Twitter or Netflix or other, you know, popular sites for a day or an hour, and everybody gets very frustrated. That's a disruptive type of attack. Another thing on that end would kind of be like a data breach, which looking at a company that holds a lot of sensitive personal data, getting that breached, and then that information gets leaked, and it's, it's very disruptive. On the other end of that spectrum, we are talking about like an infrastructure attack. So this is an attack on 
systems which actually control either manufacturing processes, transportation, or critical infrastructure such as energy or water. And you would hope that these wouldn't be uh, vulnerable, but unfortunately they are. And as I said, you know, Russia has proven themselves capable of taking the power grid in Ukraine offline, and we've also found evidence of them probing into the U.S. power grid, so there's a possibility that you know, that may be partially compromised. Uh, we've seen attacks on water facilities here in the U.S. Um, we've seen you know, what, Ukraine, what has happened in you know, Eastern Europe and Ukraine with some transportation companies and logistics companies and how cyber attacks can take them offline for you know, days or weeks at a time. And, Knowing the current issues that we've had, you know, Colonial Pipeline is a great example of that, too. But knowing the current issues that we have with, uh, you know, energy prices and supply chain shortages, thinking about what effects an attack like Colonial Pipeline would have in our current environment or an attack on our energy infrastructure, whatever it might be. Those are, you know, what would be considered the physically destructive attacks where you're actually capable of even, in some cases, destroying physical equipment with cyber weapons. Well, the more I'm learning from you about cyber warfare, the more it feels like things we've read about in spy novels are actually a part of everyday uh, real um, online warfare. Just fascinating. Uh, Most of us understand the roles of our Air Force, our Marines, and our Army, and um, our Navy when it comes to protecting our country or engaging in war. Do we have literal divisions within the country where we have rooms full of IT experts that are online identifying weak spots, identifying incoming cyber attacks and responding back and forth, more kind of that um, Internet warfare? Does that exist? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So, you know, the U.S. is considered to be the predominant cyber power. If, you know, we're talking about cyber military ability, uh, the U.S. is more sophisticated than anyone, and part of that is that we do have a dedicated command within the U.S. military called U.S. Cybercom uh, that has unbelievable offensive capabilities. And then we also have defensive, as you were talking about, uh, organizations such as within the Department of Homeland Security, there is the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, and which you know, they, and they also have computer emergency response teams. They are kind of the defensive unit. Um, of U.S. of the United States cyber force. So we are very sophisticated and we are moving in the right direction. The only thing is that, you know, most experts and analysts at this point believe that although we are by far the most sophisticated offensive cyber force in the world, we are also one of the most vulnerable company, uh, countries in the world to cyber attacks due to our level of reliance on the Internet for the function of our country. Uh, you know, when compared to even, you know, semi-developed countries like Russia and China, the amount that we rely on it for our everyday work. I mean, think of, uh, for most of your listeners, you know, if they can take a minute to think about what, uh, what, how much their work would be affected should their computer systems, their phones, be taken offline for a day or for a week. You know, how much would they actually be able to get done? How much would that affect their efficiency? That is kind of an illustration of how, despite the fact that we are very sophisticated and we have some wonderful uh, people working in these agencies to both, you know, deter and defend the country, we are also in many ways uniquely vulnerable. Well, that is absolutely fascinating and a little gut-wrenching as well. Um, So for those who want to learn more about how to 
uh, keep their own homes, their own businesses more cyber secure. Brandon, what do you recommend as, as like a resource within the community where we can get even more information about, in particular, a lot of the things that you've shared? Yeah, absolutely. Um, one of them is actually the uh, agency I just mentioned, uh, the Cybersecurity Infrastructure and Security Agency. They're a division of the Department of Homeland Security. As they go by CISA. That's the acronym. Um, so if you go to cisa.gov slash shields dash up, so cisa.gov slash shields dash up, they have some great resources on current threats, uh, cyber hygiene both for individuals and businesses, and they update it very frequently. That's a, that's a good resource. Um, if somebody feels like they're maybe – uh, a little new in cybersecurity, and they want to learn some things about basic hygiene. Uh, Googling, you know, cyber hygiene or cyber best practices will bring up a lot of resources. Uh, you know, there are educational institutions like UVU or Tulane University has some great pages, and also cybersecurity companies um, that have a lot of resources. There's videos online that can kind of help you walk through those basics um, for either you or maybe a family member that you might be concerned about as well. So those are the two places where I would point people to to either get started with their personal or with their uh, their business cyber concerns. Well, not only have I learned so much in these last 25 minutes, but I've also learned a new uh, term, which is cyber hygiene. <laughs> so, yeah, <laughs> that's a fun one. Yep, that might be one of the uh, more popular uh, internet search terms in the state of Utah due to my interview with you. Brandon Amaker is the director of the Emerging Tech Policy Lab at Utah Valley University. He also is an adjunct professor for Utah Valley University's Center for National Security Studies. Thank you so much for taking time to help us understand more about cyber attacks and how we can increase our cybersecurity and our cyber hygiene. See, I, I learned right there. Thank you for joining us on this week's edition of Utah Weekly Forum. Well, thank you very much, and uh, I sure hope that that becomes one of the most searched terms in Utah. <laughs> that would be a very good thing. Thank you for the opportunity to be here. I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. Don't miss Cold's new season three, where I look into the unsolved disappearance of Cherie Warren, a woman last seen leaving her job at a Salt Lake City office in 1985. Police cast suspicion on Cherie's estranged husband and boyfriend, but never made any arrests or recovered Cherie's remains. Find Cold season three, The Search for Cherie, anywhere you get your podcasts.